Welcome back. Today we're going to be talking about the twisted tale of Robert Hansen, the butcher, baker, prostitute, hunter. Not to be confused with Canadian Robert Picton, pig farmer who also murdered prostitutes. Robert Hansen was an actual baker and trophy game hunter who killed sex workers and dancers out in the wilderness near Anchorage, Alaska, where you would hunt them like prey. He was active from the late 70s to 1983, and in that time, he killed at least 16 women, but he had the means and the opportunity to kill many more, and he most likely did. He was born February 15th, 1939 to Edna and Christian Hansen, a pair of Danish immigrants. The family lived in Pocahontas, Iowa, and his father was the small town's local baker. Growing up, Robert always disappointed his father, sometimes for the most trivial things. Robert had a stutter from a young age and was naturally left-handed, but this frustrated his father so he forced young Robert to use his right hand for writing and utensils. Hansen would later say that being made to use his right hand confused his young brain and intensified his stutter to the point that it was socially debilitating. Growing up, you could probably find Robert either working at his father's bakery or out back practicing throwing knives or his bow and arrow. The thought of using either of these to silently kill was a thought that greatly excited young Robert Hansen. He was picked on ruthlessly for his stutter for years growing up, and as he grew into a lanky, skinny teenager, overwhelming acne developed that left his face scarred and disfigured. Later, he would refer to his own face at that time as one big pimple. By nature, he was a shy kid. So you can imagine being roasted daily all the way through high school wouldn't inspire any self-confidence. He graduated high school without ever really talking to a girl or making a connection with the opposite sex of any kind. For some reason though, he didn't blame himself or his lack of game. He didn't blame the people that bullied him constantly. He blamed the women that never gave him a chance. And after school, Robert turned that rage inward, where it began to fester for years. In search for some form of acceptance, respect, or belonging, Robert joined the volunteer firefighters in the junior police force. And when that didn't fill his daddy-shaped hole, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, which turned out to be a pretty good fit, actually. The regimented lifestyle rewarded his organizational skills, and the lack of civilian interaction complemented his very poor social skills. During basic training, he actually won the distinction of USO's Soldier of the Week, for which he was allowed a day pass in Manhattan with all the other recipients of the award. The soldiers used this time wisely and immediately got to drinking. And well, I guess boys will be boys, because as soon as the guys found out that Robert was still a virgin, the soldiers all rallied around a single mission. They were gonna get him fucked. It didn't take long for the boys to find a hooker, and Robert and her disappeared into a room. They all waited in anticipation, but when he emerged, his reaction was underwhelming. 
He was very disconnected, he said, and he expected more from the connection which was very strange to the other guys. They knew what the deal was, and they thought that he did too. After basic training, Robert returned to Iowa. He picked up working at his father's bakery and throwing knives out back. He was a junior police inspector before he left for the army, and now that he was back at 19, he expected that his title would carry on. But he was sorely disappointed when it was pulled because he was too old and a little too odd. You're fired. Go. With more time on his hands and resentment to society than ever, he started, I guess you'd call it a local gang with the high school boys that worked at the bakery. Their anarchy master plan was to blow up the town's water tower and that would show everybody. But when they realized that that was way too ambitious, Robert and the Sour Patch Kids turned their attention to the high school that he had attended, the true source of his insecurities. On December 7, 1960, they put their plan into motion. While a local high school basketball game pulled much of the town's attention in the other direction, they took a can of gas and lit the bus barn ablaze. Because he was on the volunteer fire crew, Robert actually returned on official duty later and watched as three of the buses were completely burnt. Somehow, it seemed that Robert had gotten away with it. And Hanson's luck only improved because he met a young lady named Phoebe Paget. The two of them started dating, and in 1961 they were wed, and everything seemed, well, I guess okay. But when one of the youngins that Robert committed his crime with let it slip that Robert led the raid on the bus barn, he was brought in for a lie detector test and failed. Hansen maintained his innocence, but the charges were filed and he served 20 months of a three-year prison sentence. He eventually owned up to the crime, confessing while incarcerated to his wife Phoebe, who immediately filed for divorce. And by the time Robert Hansen was released from prison, his new wife was long gone. Within just a few months, however, Robert had somehow convinced yet another local yokel to marry him. Darla Henriksen, a devoutly religious woman. Around this time, Hansen became something of a kleptomaniac. He began stealing things just for the thrill of it, and would even brag to others at the bakery about the rush that he got from doing it. Robert was caught stealing many times over the following years, but because his father was a well-respected member of the community, Robert slipped by without any real punishment time and time again. His obsession with weapons had grown to a passion for hunting wild game, and the same skills that made him successful at basic training also made him a great hunter. In 1967, Robert and his wife abruptly moved to Alaska, apparently for a fresh start and to hunt the big game of Alaska. There in the wilderness, he fine-tuned his skills as a bow hunter to an elite level. He became so good, in fact, that kills that he made in 1969, 70, and 71 with a bow were ranked in the Pope and Young World Record books. He wasn't just hunting in Alaska, though. He also started working at the bakery in town. In 1971, Hansen followed a woman home from this day job and asked her on a date. He was turned down, and a week later he returned with a gun to kidnap her. Robert Hansen was now officially hunting a new 
kind of prey. Thankfully, he was caught and arrested, but Robert bailed himself out that day. Come his court date, the kidnapping charge was dropped, and Robert had dodged yet another bullet. This brush with the law got Robert thinking, though. He knew he needed to get his victim alone without relying on his communication skills or connection of any kind. And that's when he had a twisted realization. The local Tenderloin District offered him that unique opportunity. The Tenderloin District of 70's Anchorage was a mob-ran stretch of titty bars, regular bars, and all-out prostitution. Hookers and dirty magazine stands lined the streets and pornos were shot in the buildings. In this part of town, the word dancer, prostitute, and model were all interchangeable and up for sale. This part of town thrived off of the Anchorage oil boom and the part-time labor and disposable incomes that consumed the small city. For Robert, the women roaming the Tenderloin District were much easier prey than women he'd see at work. When they saw him, they felt safe with such a scrawny geek. For the right price, he could pay to get a loan without his social shortcomings mucking things up. By targeting these women, Hanson knew the police were less likely to take action, and he was right. With his strategy retuned, he began to rinse and repeat. First, you would select a target, picking a local prostitute or dancer to be his prey. Once determined, he would make contact. If it were a hooker, he would pay $300 for the deed, and if it were a dancer, $300 to take her picture. Either way, he would arrange to meet later at a public place, usually the local Wendy's. Robert would arrive in one of his many nondescript disguises, usually sporting a fake mustache, as he could never grow one himself. He would arrive early and wait in his car to see if she arrived alone. Once that was confirmed, he would walk in after she did, meet the woman, and the two would walk to Robert's car together. This is where the nightmare begins, because once in the car, Robert would shove a gun in their face and handcuff them to their own car seat. He told them everything would be fine if they just did what he said, and that they would just have to be a little more careful next time. Next, he would drive them to a motel or deep out into the woods, where he would rape his victims repeatedly. If they weren't deep in the wilderness already at this point, that's where they would head. Finally, he'd release his naked and tired victim out into the harsh Alaskan elements to be hunted as human prey. Robert stopped, tortured, and killed them using a hunting knife and a 223 caliber Mini-14 rifle. The first signs of this routine appeared only days after Hansen bailed himself out after trying to kidnap the woman that he had followed home. The body of a woman, later identified as Celia Van Zanten, was found by two hikers in a ravine in the woods. The frozen remains of the woman were naked below the waist and bore a slash across her chest. The corpse showed signs of being gagged and raped, and the hands were tied behind her back with speaker wire. She didn't die from the laceration in her chest, but rather she froze to death. 
She likely jumped in the ravine to hide from her hunter, only to realize that she couldn't climb out without the use of her arms. Celia Van Santen's death was never officially tied to Robert Hansen, and he denied the crime. While investigating Celia's death, though, police gathered several stories from women who described horrifying events involving a pop-marked, stuttering man with a short, chubby, dimple dick. Although Robert Hansen was a dead ringer for the description, at least as far as cops knew, he always seemed to have a convenient alibi that ruled him out, and this case was no different. Robert settled into his careful routine, carrying on for years treating women like trophies to be captured and hunted. The transient nature of those intertwined with the sex trade in Alaska made the missing women a rather uneventful happening. Robert's crimes were also easily overlooked by the understaffed police force that was still somewhat adjusting to the area's population growth. In 1977, Hansen caught the attention of the police again, being arrested for stealing a chainsaw. The prosecutor had Robert Hansen's psychiatric reports from his earlier arson charge back in Iowa, so it was clear to him that he was unstable, but somehow Robert ended up only serving 16 months of a five-year sentence. Upon release, he was ordered on a lithium mood control program, but this was never followed up on. Shortly after his early release, Hansen killed his very first confirmed victim. Whether this was the start of his killing spree or him just getting back to business as usual is debated. Hansen crafted and carried out a plan to build a facade of legitimacy for himself. He saw how his father's reputation translated to lenient treatment from law enforcement and I think he was hoping for the same for himself. All he had to do was fake a burglary and commit insurance fraud and then use that $13,000 bag to open a bakery and just like that, Robert Hansen became the butcher baker owner of Hansen's Bakery in January of 1981. Wouldn't you know it, it was located just outside of the Anchorage Tenderloin District at 9th and Ingra. And this BS persona paid off immediately for him when a woman escaped from his camper in the middle of the woods and managed to find help. Even though her hands and feet had deep lacerations from being bound with a guitar string and she specifically ID'd Robert Hansen as the perp, the cops took the word of a business owner over that of a hooker and Hansen eluded justice again. In January of 1982, Hansen spent what he had left of the insurance fraud money on a Piper Super Cub, a two-man single-engine airplane which became his primary killing transport. After picking up and raping a woman, he would now fly his victims from Merrill Field to one of the countless sandbars on the Kinnick River, just outside of Anchorage where his hunts would begin. It's thought that he would toy with the women wounding them to prolong the hunt before eventually killing them. He would loot the downed body for a piece of jewelry, a trophy to remember his kill, before burying the body in a shallow grave. He would then fly back to the hangar alone, letting the elements and the wildlife clean up his mess. Because of the vast Alaskan terrain and harsh conditions, many victims were never located. But by 1980, the first body confirmed to be a victim of Hansen's 
was found by a building crew on Eklutna Lake Road. It was badly decomposed and scattered by wildlife, and the body was never ID'd, but they did determine that she died from stab wounds. She became known as Eklutna Annie, named for the road on which she was found. The second body was found later that year in a gravel pit near Seward. It was the corpse of Joanne Messina, yet another topless dancer that had gone missing. Her corpse had already been scavenged by an endangered black bear, and in a cruel twist of fate, it returned for seconds once cops had arrived on the scene. Needless to say, the scene had been compromised, and the cops didn't have much to go on. On September 12, 1982, a third body was found on the banks of the Kanik River by hunters. The victim was identified as 23-year-old stripper Sherry Morrow, She'd been shot three times, but curiously, the clothes that she wore didn't have any bullet holes, suggesting that she was redressed after she was killed. When police canvassed the area, they found 223 cartridges and determined that she was killed by a hunting rifle, most likely a Mini-14. In response, the Alaska State Troopers created a special task force in order to determine if the cases could be linked. The task force, appropriately dubbed the Topless Dancers Task Force, began by combing the wilderness for more potential bodies. On September 2, 1983, the fourth body was also found on the banks of the Kanik River. She was also shot to death and redressed, just like Sherry Morrow. The body was later ID'd as missing 17-year-old dancer Paula Goulding and an autopsy revealed that she was killed with a single 223 round through the heart that was shot from a hunting rifle. It was now undeniable that the women of Anchorage's sex trade were being hunted by a serial killer. The last time the Alaskan authorities went after a serial killer, Thomas Bunday, in 1981, it ended with Bunday committing suicide by slamming his motorcycle head-on into a semi-truck. Hoping for a tidier conclusion, the Topless Dancers Task Force knew they were going to need a little help. As Hansen's private life was becoming more and more depraved, his public image was at an all-time high. By this point, Robert Hansen, business owner, husband, and father of two, was becoming a trusted pillar in the community. He had gained the trust of his neighbors and had somehow kept his dirty secret from his own family. But in the 80s, Robert took on what he called his summer project. Robert would send his family on a summer vacation so that he could commit his acts of rape and torture in the comfort of his own home. In 1983, he had sent his family to Europe for this exact purpose. But a word to the wise, with comfort comes complacency, as we will see, because it was ultimately Robert Hansen's summer project that led to his capture. On June 11, 1983, 19-year-old Cindy Paulson was working 4th Avenue in the Anchorage Tenderloin District when she was approached by a scrawny man whose face was covered in pot marks. Peering through his coat bottle glasses, he managed to nervously stutter out a proposition. 
After sizing him up and concluding that he was not a threat, Cindy agreed to blow him for 200 bucks. She got in his car and they drove to a more private spot where she began the transaction. Mid-act, Cindy felt steel tighten around her wrist. She saw that she had been cuffed, but her attention was immediately on the pistol pointed directly between her eyes. As they drove, Hanson told her if she did exactly as he said, she would live. When they arrived at Robert's large suburban home, he forced Cindy inside and down to the basement. There, surrounded by the stuffed sporting trophies of Robert's own kills, he raped her repeatedly and even violated her with the head of a hammer. When he finished, he chained her handcuffs to an eyeball on a support beam there in the basement where she remained for the night while Robert slept. When he awoke the next morning, Robert explained to Cindy that he was going to fly them out to his cabin in the mountains, and so long as she continued to cooperate, she would continue to live. He prepared what he needed for the trip, and he came back for Cindy. Before dragging her out to the car, he gave her a warning. He said his friends had agreed to lie about an alibi, so if she screamed or ran, he would kill her on the spot. He took her out to the car and cuffed her to the seat just like he had before. After a short drive, they pulled up next to a small blue and white plane at a small private airport. Cindy watched as Hansen loaded a duffel and his Ruger Mini 14 into the plane. That's when she knew if she got on that plane, she was dead. Robert returned and unlatched her handcuff from the seat, and in a stroke of luck, he turned his back just long enough for Cindy to bolt. Only half-dressed and handcuffs swinging from her wrist, Cindy ran for her life like a bat out of hell. Hanson gave chase at first, but when they both saw the headlights of an approaching truck, he relented and went home to clean up. The truck driver picked Cindy up, and upon her instructions, dropped her off at a shitty hotel where her and her pimp conducted business. She asked the front desk clerk to call the cops while she called her pimp. When the cops arrived, Cindy was standing outside alone, handcuffed still dangling from her wrist. After going to the hospital, she laid out the entire story for the police. She described Robert's red hair, scarred complexion, glasses, and awful stutter. She described in great detail the car that he used to drive her around in, the house that she was taken to, and she even insisted upon going to the airstrip to identify the plane. The medical examination from the hospital revealed vaginal bruising as well as shackle marks around her neck and wrists. The police used the tail number on the plane to track down the owner, a Robert Hansen, a local baker and family man. At first glance it didn't seem right, but when investigators followed up with a visit, they saw that the address registered to Robert Hansen led them to a home very similar to the one described by Paulson. Then Hansen pulled up in a car identical to the one described by Paulson. When approached, Hansen invited them in, and everything inside the home was exactly as Paulson had described as well. But Robert remained calm and answered the police's questions. He provided an alibi that checked out, and he consented to a search of his house, his car, and his plane. The cops jumped at the opportunity 
but once police had conducted their searches, they found no evidence of a violent assault, no eye bolt in the basement like she described, or the pistol that she said was brandished. Officer Greg Baker, lead investigator on the Paulson case, had a pretty good feeling that Robert Hansen was his man. But without any hard evidence, his commanding officers were forced to weigh a prostitute's word against that of a business owner and family man's. The police shut the case down until new evidence could be found. Convinced of Hansen's guilt, but left without recourse, Officer Baker turned over everything he had on the case to the Topless Dancers Task Force. It turned out that Robert Hansen was already on their short list, but armed with this new information, Alaska's finest knew exactly what to do. Call in even more help from the FBI, and it's a good thing that they did too, because the FBI sent famed profiler John Douglas, inspiration for TV's Mindhunter and spearhead of modern psychological profiling techniques used to this day. He was able to determine based on the evidence that the killer would have low self-esteem and would suffer from a speech impediment, probably a stutter. As a teen, they probably had skin issues and may have experimented with arson. They believed he was an upstanding member of society, he would probably be married, but his wife would be religious and oblivious to his actions. And he would be an exceptional hunter, probably kept a murder bag with disguises, and probably even collected trophies of his kills. So, uh, pretty good. Pretty good profile. It was also his idea for the cops to press the people who had supplied Hansen's alibi for the Paulson case, letting them know that they would go down for their lives. The move worked like a charm, and once Hansen's friends realized the gravity of what they were covering, they gave him up immediately. They even filled the cops in on the insurance scam that funded his bakery. And as if the floodgates had burst open, evidence began to flood in all at once. A woman claiming to be a past victim of Hansen stepped forward after she recognized him at his own bakery. Police also confirmed that tire tracks found at one of the crime scenes were an exact match to the tires in Robert Hansen's plane. With new evidence in hand and the stellar profile by Douglas, the police compiled and submitted a 48-page affidavit. And based on that affidavit, the judge granted eight search warrants for Robert Hansen and his property and set a legal precedent by doing so. It was the first time that a psychological profile was used as the main basis for issuing search warrants. The search was conducted on October 8, 1983, and the cops picked up Robert at his bakery and drove him to his house. The warrant specified that the police were looking for the types of trophies that Douglas had described in his profile. In the last place that the police looked in the back of the attic, the police pulled back wood paneling to find a box containing several pieces of cheap jewelry and IDs traced back to the missing women, including a distinctive arrowhead necklace that belonged to Sherry Morrow, his third confirmed victim. The search also uncovered a Ruger Mini-14 used in the murders, and a handgun matching the one in Paulson's description. The most telling piece of evidence found in the search, though, was a surprise to everyone. Police found an aviation map of the area with 24 X's all over the terrain. 
When they cross-checked the X's with previous victims found, all four bodies lined up with the corresponding X. When the news broke of what Hansen was accused of, all of Robert's alibis over the years began calling the cops to retract their statements. And on February 16, 1984, Hansen was finally ready to confess, but he had conditions. He wanted to restrict the publicity to spare his family the embarrassment. He also wanted the case to be tried outside of Alaska and to only be convicted of the four murders that the cops knew about currently. In exchange, he would provide a full confession and reveal the locations of the graves of the rest of his victims. After the cops agreed, they flew Hansen to the locations on the map in order to recover the missing remains of his many victims. In a single day, Hansen led them to 12 bodies, pinpointing the spot so exactly that police only had to dig a single hole to find each of the 12 bodies. The remaining 8 X's on Robert Hansen's map remain question marks. And on February 27, 1984, Robert Hansen was found guilty of the murders of Sherry Morrow, Joanna Massini, Eklutna Annie, and Paula Goulding. The judge handed down a sentence of 461 years plus life without the possibility of parole. Robert Hansen resided in Seward Correctional until August 21st, 2014 when he died of natural causes. Before he died, he confessed to one more murder, the body of which was never found, bringing an official count to 17, which falls about seven short according to his own records. That's it. Thank you. I hope everybody enjoyed the two-part series on guys named Robert who kill prostitutes. I've been trying to come up with a good way to categorize these videos, and uh, I stumbled across the stupidest way to do it. So if you guys have anything better, uh, just let me know in the comments. Alright, manic out.